0: Well, hey there, podcast listeners. We are so glad you're listening. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor here at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. We are so delighted to be moving through this spring season now together. We are moving rapidly through Lent towards Holy Week and just feel so many reasons for optimism and excitement in this season of the life of the church. And we're just thrilled that you're listening in this uh, sermon that you're about to listen to is from Lent, week five. It's the last Sunday in Lent before Palm Sunday, which is also technically in the Lenten season. But uh, it's it's the last Sunday before Palm Sunday kicks us off for Holy Week, the most sacred week in the life of the church calendar. And um, so this is sort of the culminating moment in our series on Matthew's parables as we've been following through the narrative lectionary. I'll mention that in the sermon but it's from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, and it's called, uh, With Affection, Oh, Hell. <laughs> so I hope that you find that this sermon is helpful and meaningful to you. I thought... Uh, erroneously, evidently, before church that this was the first time I'd ever talked about hell in a sermon since I've been here at Williamsburg Baptist. But then one of my, um, one of our newer members said, you preached about hell last fall or something sometime around then. So apparently this is round two for hell for me since I've been here at Williamsburg Baptist. Heavy topic. Uh, I don't mean to make light of it, but it is something that a lot of us carry baggage with from um uh, perhaps conservative or fundamentalist upbringings within the life of the church, or evangelical, uh, perhaps I should say, um, where hell is just not a topic that comes up a lot in Scripture. Uh, it The word that is translated as hell is um, mentioned or used 12 times in the New Testament, uh, only 12 times, and so it's just not that common. And so I hope that this sermon is an attempt for us to kind of reconfigure what we think um, about judgment and hell in the afterlife and reorient our brains and hearts and faith and lives really in the direction of Scripture, which is much more focused on this life and um, how we are living out God's um, hope and dreams for the world and really living in, living into the reality of God's kingdom in the here and now. And that's um, much more faithful to who Jesus is calling us to be and what the witness of Scripture is, and I hope that this sermon is helpful in that regard. We really are glad you're listening. Feel free to reach out to me at pastor at williamsburgbaptist.com if you want to connect or share prayer concerns. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or find us, as always, on the web at williamsburgbaptist.com. Hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. I don't know where this thought came from, but at some point uh, in grade school, uh, when I was young, maybe around six or seven, I learned at some point that if I stuck my middle finger up and didn't immediately ask God for forgiveness, I would go to hell. I don't know if one of my cousins said something to me, or maybe I heard something about it, and <laughs> Beljo was like, what in the world? I am, I am totally right there with you, Beljo. <laughs> and so I found myself rather quickly apologizing to God when I put my middle finger up. And since our children have gone to the East Wing, I think it's safe for me to demonstrate to you all now in the context of church. Ready? Okay. Dear God, please forgive me for putting my middle finger up. I'm so sorry, and I promise I won't do it again. Amen. For some reason, I didn't get it that it had to just be my middle finger. But it was a heavy burden for a child to carry for a few days until I wisened up and figured out it didn't count if I stuck up all of my fingers at the same time. I'm grateful it was a fleeting misunderstanding, and I do feel fortunate that for most of my childhood I didn't live in the shadow of the fear of hell. It really wasn't until I got to college and I started spending more time thinking about hell and wondering who went there and why. And I think that's in part because I grew up in a rural, what I would describe as easygoing, United Methodist congregation but I ended up going to a Baptist college and fell into a group of lifelong Baptists. And I loved my college experience and wouldn't trade it for the world and still love my friends from that season of life dearly. But I learned a lot of things during those years that weren't a part of my own faith experience growing up. My friends were always talking about something called quiet times, and I had no idea what that was. They were always talking about something called the rapture, and the sinner's prayer, and that you had to pray to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, language that was not used with any frequency in my own upbringing in church. And I first heard about the Romans' road to salvation and believers' baptism. And my friends had a lot of grace for me as the black sheep of the group because I would wonder from time to time, well, maybe people from other religions can go to heaven too. It really was in college Also, that I learned what I think of as sort of like the formula. You've probably heard some variation of it at some point. We've all sinned, and God hates sin, and sin is antithetical to God's very being. But we are hopeless and helpless to overcome it on our own, and thus are destined to spend all of eternity in the afterlife in hell as well-deserved punishment, unless... Unless we get down on our knees and pray and accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. And then at that moment, somewhere an angel flips a switch in heaven, and suddenly our afterlife destination is rerouted from the bad place to the good place. Have you heard some variation on that? Okay. And that was all fine and well until I read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, today's passage. More on that in just a minute. We're getting close to the end of Lent, and for weeks now we've been wading through the challenging waters of the parables. We have wrestled with them mightily. We might even say they have wrestled with us mightily some of the weeks. Today's passage is sort of a grand central station for this section of Matthew. This scripture passage is the culmination of so much of what has come before And after this, if you turn the page to chapter 26 in Matthew later, you'll find that it immediately launches into Jesus' Last Supper, his arrest, his crucifixion. But today, as we imagine this story, this culminating moment of Jesus' parables in Matthew, we might imagine the faces of all the figures that we've encountered so far in the parables gathering for one final hurrah. Ten bridesmaids, remember them? wheat and weeds, the laborers in the vineyard, the good and bad servants and more, all ready to be sorted and judged at long last. If you're a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is sort of like the end game of the parable cinematic universe. If you, anybody ever watch a Marvel movie? Okay, thank you. This story depicts the end of time as we know it, a judgment scene in which the king divides people into the righteous and the wicked, and some to everlasting blessing and some to everlasting torment. The parable begins with all the nations gathering before this heavenly figure called the Son of Man, Jesus, who will judge them. And Jesus divides them to the right and to the left. Like a shepherd would shep separate out the sheep and the goats after an, at the end of a day grazing in the pastures. Sheep, you go to the right to the place of blessing and honor. And with apologies to left-handed folks, goats, you go to the left side, the unlucky, dishonorable, and even cursed side. And I see that you all rather helpfully already self-sorted yourselves this morning. I'm a little bit surprised to see that there are more goats than sheep in the congregation today. It would have been a great joke to play on me if you all sat on this half of the congregation this morning. (laughs) Maybe next time this passage rolls around. And so Jesus says to those at his right, Come, you are that are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But notice the sheep are confused, saying, What have we done to deserve this? And this is where things began to go off the rails for my college-aged self, all because Jesus doesn't respond in this way. He doesn't say, well, you got down on your knees and prayed the sinner's prayer. You finally grasped the theology of the Romans' road, and you walked down the aisle and got baptized. Isn't that surprising? In today's passage, it's evidently not about believing the right things or following the formula. It's actually about ethics how you treat people, whether or not you're kind or whether or not you live out Jesus' teachings and the golden rule and so forth in your life. Yes, the passage seems to suggest that judgment is a real thing. It just doesn't reflect what we Christians have long thought. It's not about whether you stick up your middle finger and immediately ask for forgiveness. But how you treat people. And whether or not you treat them as if they too bear the image of God in them, and most especially those who are viewed as the least and the last in this world. Just when I thought I had hell figured out interrupts this radical Jewish teacher saying this. Right? It feels like Jesus changing the syllabus halfway through the semester. Only when you go back and dig through the New Testament to check, it turns out he's been saying basically the same thing all along. We've just misunderstood. Here's the thing, this parable presents a story about the future in much the same way that the ghost of Christmas future visits Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. It's about the future, yes, but only to the extent that it's trying to shape our present reality. It's the ghost of judgment future, trying to change how we're living our lives in the present, trying to change the world in the present. So what is Jesus trying to tell us today with this parable about the future? Feed the hungry. Offer drink to those who thirst. Welcome the stranger and the foreigner. Clothe the naked. Care for those who are sick. Visit the incarcerated. Echoing the prophet Isaiah. Warren Carter says that each of these actions are ones that overturn injustice and break the yoke of oppressive empires. For Jesus and his followers, the world is ordered according to Rome's empire. We've seen this time and again in the parables. People are hungry, Jesus and others would say, because Rome's elite haven't prioritized food justice over their own comfort. People are thirsty because they live in crowded cities with inadequate water supplies. They're strangers because of Roman xenophobia, and they suffer in prisons because they've been unjustly incarcerated. But Jesus says, come inherit the kingdom, the empire, God's empire, the empire or kingdom of heaven that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come use your resources to reshape the very order of the world and help it resemble God's kingdom more than Rome's. Live out this alternative vision of justice and care and concern for others, one that that reflects the very heart of God for all people. Then you'll be ready for judgment. It's a good vision, I think, but I find myself continuing to come back to this one curious point. Everyone in this parable is surprised about how they're sorted. They don't get it. The sheep say, Lord, when when did we feed you and give you a drink? When did we welcome you or clothe you or visit you in prison? Jesus responds, the things you have done for the least of these among you, you have done for me. The key point, I think, is so curious here. The sheep in this story weren't doing these things just to avoid judgment or hell. They were just doing it because of their sincere love and concern for others. They weren't doing this because they wanted to look good or boast their social standing or sit in the front row at church the next Sunday. With, with a pun, not trying to make a statement about anyone sitting up front. Y'all are such good Baptists. <laughs> they were just kind. It was just loving kindness. If we find ourselves asking the question, "What do I have to do if I want to spend eternity in the good place?" It seems to me that we're asking the wrong question. That's transactional. In fact, it seems to me that this passage reveals what we Christians have totally blown it over the years and centuries with our overwhelming emphasis on making sure we go to heaven when we die. Instead, this parable suggests that Jesus cares much more about how we relate to people in the here and now, and especially those who are outside of our ordinary social circles or those in our classrooms or workplaces or society who are most often overlooked. Do we see divine value in them? Can we orient our head and our heart so that we see the image of God in each and every person we meet? This seems to me to be precisely the opposite of Rome's trajectory of concern, which is entirely upward. And I dare say too often our own trajectory of concern in 21st century America as well. We're always looking up, concerned about image and status and job title and salary level and how many people come to our church on Sunday morning. And it's Lent, and so maybe we need to repent from the temptation for us goats to cast our gazes upward to the wealthy and the powerful in our society and towards celebrities and CEOs and famous pastors. Maybe we need to remember that empires, ancient and modern, are really good at treating a lot of folks like less than human, as not created in God's image. Maybe we need to remember that the heart of God revealed in Torah and the Hebrew scriptures and revealed in Jesus and the New Testament has always been about self giving love for others. Do unto others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, reread this parable and I think we'll see who Jesus thinks it is. And maybe we'll learn to open our eyes and move past the hell of our indifference to a life marked by compassion and love. And if we're paying attention, if we're looking carefully enough when we encounter others, we just might see Jesus in their eyes. Folks, let's open our eyes and open our hearts and pay attention. Amen.